and you've tuned in to another episode of The Wellness Couch, where science and ancient wisdom collaborate 3ABR 87.6 FM, and we're your hosts, Katarina and Brett Morrison. Tonight, Brett, we have a great photographer, Australia's uh, Doug Gim- Gimshi is an international award-winning conservation and wildlife photojournalist, an associate fellow of the International League of Conservation Photographers. And uh, Doug's images, you can actually see them any- everywhere. They've been showcased in publications such as National Geographic, Australian Geographic, the BBC Wildlife and the New York Times. Um, he's initially trained as a zoologist and microbiologist, so lots of talent there. And Doug also holds a Diploma of Education, a Master's of Environment and Master's of Bioethics. We've also got his partner, Heather, who is an award-winning media graphic artist and passionate um, conservationist. Are you both there? We are. We are. Oh, fantastic to have you on board. Hi, how are you going? Hi, nice to be here. Look, it's so great to have you on. Like, you know, we, we had the um, opportunity to catch up with you last weekend and, and spend some time to get to know you, and that was fantastic. So thanks so much for that. And so... I think it's really special for us to have you onto the show tonight and to share some of your story with us. So before we get going into the, I guess, into the, the weeds of what it means to be a photojournalist as well, could you just share with us a little bit, Doug, particularly how you got onto this journey? Because like you shared with us the other day that uh, obviously you're trained as a zoologist, but you're also a professional skier. So how do you morph from this you know, role as a professional athlete and into going into conservation and photojournalism to, I guess, in support of your passion of conservation? Yeah, my, my, my career has been uh, very, um, a long and winding road. I, I, <laughs> I just grew up uh, watching David Attenborough's Life on Earth. That oh, was a formative yeah. uh, thing from in the early 80s. I'm showing my age. And I uh, watched that and then thought, I want to be a zoologist or a National Geographic photographer. So that's in the <laughs> early 80s. So I, I did a zoology degree and worked. Um, in zoology and also took up photography, but that was in the days of film, which was just insanely expensive. Um, you know, probably the equivalent today, you know, to shoot a photo would cost you two dollars a photo. And now, I don't know whether I just didn't have the money on my skills weren't that good, but I spent a few years in research and then had this long winding road and then ended up actually in a corporate gig uh, after having done a teaching qualification um, selling pharmaceuticals. And, and worked my way up uh, to be associate uh, director of infectious diseases, um, which is uh, interesting given the uh, issues happening today. Yeah. Um, and then in the early 2000s, um, I was working in HIV AIDS and I decided to do a bit more study and study bioethics and uh, was lucky enough to uh, do part of my master's with Peter Singer, who's one of the great oh, interesting, yeah. In, in, in the world, we were having a conversation and um, from that, I just thought, okay, I really want to get back to my, my roots. So I, I got on the board of Environment Victoria. And then in 2012, um, Heather and I decided to have a trip to Antarctica. And I thought, look, I'm going to pick the camera up again. And uh, picked it up and uh, put a few photos out there. And uh, obviously my skills had improved in the in the 30 years. And that year I published a few and then I did some competitions and did... Well, and wildlife photographer of the year, so I put down my corporate hat and decided to be a, a full-time conservation and wildlife photographer. Which, you know, the the, the joke is, how do you end up with a hundred thousand dollars in the bank to be a, a wildlife and conservation photojournalist? Yes. You need to start with a million ten years earlier <laughs> yeah. because it, it it doesn't pay well. But that's not the point. I mean, you do it because you love it. And I guess, like all art and artistic careers and photojournalism. Um, you need uh, support, but you said you need a bit of a financial base as well. So I guess having taken those 20 years to build that up, yeah. it gave me the luxury to not care about or not really need to earn yeah. as much money. Um, so there's a, there's a luxury uh, that I got from working in pharmaceuticals. Plus we don't have kids. And we don't have kids <laughs> as well. Bit more spare cash. You've yeah. got cats, yeah, they're your children. <laughs> Do, um, so you, you think you finally found your niche? Oh, look, I always wanted to be a, a, a wildlife National Geographic photographer. I, I just think I got um, distracted, um, yeah. to be honest. Um, it's easy to do, that, isn't it? So what attracted yeah, you to the actual I, I, wildlife photojournalism? What actually attracted you to it? Well, I used to call myself a wildlife photographer, um, and I used to take photos of just, when I say just wildlife, not just, but a wildlife. And then I realised if you can't make... A difference um, 
for the world why. And, and look, having worked in, in pharmaceuticals and worked in oncology and infectious diseases, um, I did feel I was making a difference, but I've always loved wildlife. And so I guess having done zoology, I, I came back to my roots. And so yeah. I, I sort of transitioned from a wildlife photographer to a wildlife and conservation photographer. And, and then I went, well, it's just not about photos, it's about documenting. So I then really started focusing on photojournalism. So I don't Photoshop or, or do anything um, like that. And captions have to be brutally um, honest and candid and des- descriptive. I mean, really, I, I, if I could do a full name, I'd say a conservation and animal welfare photojournalist. But most mm, people great. look at me and go, I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> so I just say wildlife. I just say wildlife yeah. and, wildlife and uh, conservation photojournalist. Um, yeah. So, what role do you think um, your photography does play in the um, in the conservation story of today? Well, I think uh, generally I- images are generally more powerful than than words, yeah. and that's going to be a, a big call to many people. But I mean, there, there are several things about them. Uh, images are processed much faster, about sixty thousand times faster than yeah. words. I mean, words are relatively new. Ninety three percent of our uh, sensory processing is normally visual if you've got all your senses. Yeah. Um, images trigger emotions and can trigger meta-emotions, which really means multiple emotions at the same time. They normally seem to be what's known as indexical, which is they speak the truth. Now, I know Photoshop has changed that, mm. but I think the other really big thing about imagery is it transcends geographical and linguistic barriers. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you can speak English, how literate you are. It doesn't really matter what language you speak. A, a powerful image uh, transcends those geographical and linguistic barriers. And I think the other thing is a, a, a good image, a good photojournalistic image, tells a story. So oh, as well it does. as um, crossing those linguistic barriers, it's, it, you see a powerful image and you, you, if it's done well, it's a good photographer, the story's told. Oh, most definitely. one yeah. image. Yeah. And really quickly. And, and that's mm-hmm. the goal of, I guess, most of us. We, we do, well, I do um, uh, photo stories. However, for me... If I can take an image that says everything that I need to say, uh, can engage emotions, oh, um, yeah. can get people to do something, um, because I think that's the thing about conservation. Understanding and knowing something is important, but if you don't do anything, to me that's sort of nice, but who cares? I mean, to me, I hope my uh, work either gets people to do more of something good or less of something bad or start something good or stop doing something bad or a mixture of those. But if there's no behaviour involved, it's a bit like reading a trashy magazine, which can be fun. You go, oh, that's nice. Um, And similarly with images. Sometimes I take images that are just, I think, are beautiful, but if they don't uh, drive behaviours as a conservation photographer, they're a little bit pointless for me. But that's not to say that all photography is like that. That's just my... The way I like to focus in the world. And digital has changed that a fair bit these days, hasn't it? Because once upon a time, you know, like you said, you'd have to take a photo and, and I guess photographers would get very specific about that shot because you know it actually does take a lot of money to process it. Do you think now with digital, there's a little bit of, I guess, photo pollution where you just see all these photos taken? But I know for someone like with your artistic flair, you're, you're probably scrolling through all your photos to go, that one. I, I, I think I technically, as a technical term, you ask me, is there a lot of crap out there? I think that's yeah. the question you're asking. <laughs> yeah. Sort of like that, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, that, that's a very technical description. Uh, look, absolutely, but look, that's, that's okay as well. I think for me, um, the question for any photo, I don't think there is a bad photo out there if the person who took it is important. I mean, if you've if you're got a five-year-old kid and it's his first soccer match, if you love it and it's important to you, it doesn't mean it's going to win an award, it doesn't have to be perfectly exposed, but if it's important to that person, I think that's okay. But I think uh, there's a lot of photos out there, there's a lot of selfies, and, and yeah. selfies always um, worry me. There's been some interesting <laughs> research. Well, there's been some interesting it does, research you're right. Done, yeah. Well, there's been some interesting research done that shows um, it, it was for men, but you know, I think it, it could be uh, extrapolated. Uh, men who were taking selfies, photoshopping, changing it, or had a high degree of uh, narcissism Narcissist, yeah. and psychopathy. And I think, I remember when I was a kid, if my dad went overseas, I'd say, oh, show us a photo of the Grand Canyon. I wouldn't say, please, show me a photo of you standing in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think sometimes these, the selfies, and I hate, I hate the selfie sticks because it's become a, 
um, the world's become a green screen to all about me, yeah. me, me. Yes. And I think the values of the world need to be more about these issues. And that's not to say you don't want to have photos of your family and friends and with them. But there's nothing nicer than asking a stranger who doesn't look shonky is not going to run off with your camera to say, <laughs> you know, would you would you take a photo of us because you're engaging with other human beings and it's just not, not all about um, focusing on yourself as, uh, with the world as a background. So, um, you know, I think images can um, serve good and bad. I, I honestly don't think unless it's totally inappropriate or hurts someone there are bad images, but there's a lot yeah. of images of course out there that wouldn't be published by national geographic yeah and you know as, as a classic example uh, a friend of mine who's probably one of the top nat geo um photographers he probably had 20 20 photos published in in one of his stories and i asked him how many did you take and he said two hundred fifty thousand mm, over three cool. months so for the people out there who go oh my god i can't take a really good photo <laughs> i mean i would normally shoot five or six thousand for maybe eight or ten wow photos that would be published and of those i might really be proud of one maybe two wow. um so uh, to your question about digital the great thing about that is that you can hold your finger on the shutter and fire away but having said that some of the great national geographic photographers like jim richardson he would shoot thirty thousand rolls i uh, sorry thirty thousand images um for national geographic wow. to get eight or ten published in National Geographic, and, and his work is absolutely beautiful. If you get the chance, Jim Richardson, uh, his work on Scotland is just gorgeous. But he might spend two, three months there. But um, digital just made it a little bit cheaper, and I think also given people the ability to get immediate feedback, and that's really good because you yeah. take it and go, oh, it's overexposed, underexposed, um, and especially for uh, photos like, you know, someone's down the beach at Apollo Bay, where, as you know, I was last week. <laughs> yeah. slow, slow exposures, slow exposures and get that milky water. Um, you can go, oh, do I need half a second, two seconds, three seconds, four seconds? And it doesn't cost you anything, A, to do that, and B, to experiment. And yeah. I, I, I like digital. Yeah, it's definitely opened up the photography world, hasn't it? And like you said, you get that instant feedback so you can... Just get that that perfect shot. Yeah, and, and I love yeah. what you do. I mean, I've viewed some of your photos, just absolutely magnificent. And uh, the way that you can travel to the corners of the world and, you know, deliver, like you said, um, that uh, emotional engagement or inspire that emotional engagement in people, you know, and you bring that back. A lot of people can't travel to the ends of the earth like you, you both have, and you actually deliver that back, you know, and inspire people to, to conserve, you know, what's actually out there. And so if it wasn't for people like you, we wouldn't be able to... Um, you know, be inspired um, to see what's actually out there, and so it, I, I think I think you know that the, the uh, um, you've just got to put Sir David at the top of that. You know, and, yeah, you know, I love I, Sir I, David. I, I, don't, I, love I, don't think I, I don't think I should put my name even in the rest of this interview because he's, he's, he's the person he's, he and his team have done it. I think um, it's his team as well that are incredible. Yeah. I mean. I get recognised yeah, for a, a lot of my work. His team don't. I mean, there was 30 seconds of Snow Leopard video about 10 <laughs> years ago, or maybe eight years ago, and it took the videographer nine months in a hide in the Himalayas to get 30 seconds. Now, does wow. anyone know his name? I do, but, <laughs> yeah. but that's because, you know, I care. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, there, there's a lot of people behind the scenes. If, if anyone's seen my octopus teacher, it's a beautiful story. Yeah. That people, like, people like Pippa... Uh, who was the uh, director and all the other people? You'll you, you'll never know them, see them, but they were there with the video cameras and holding the lighting. So yeah, um, uh, there are a lot of uh, wonderful people who, as I said, dedicate their life to, uh, to to help inspire other people to care. Yeah, and a lot of time they're putting themselves in danger too, aren't they, to to get that shot? Yeah, I mean, I I'm just on my way now. I got a speeding ticket. I mean, thank you. If you are listening, you know who you are. Who gave me that one? Here, <laughs> haven't, got, haven't got one in eighteen years. So where were you um, on your way to? Oh, we, we, we were coming into Skeens Creek from oh. uh, we were, we were for our two and a half week holiday down there uh, <laughs> two and a half weeks ago. So, um, but that's okay. I didn't realise the sign was now uh, sixty versus eighty. Mm. Yeah. Um, look, some, look, some, look, some people put themselves in danger. I guess my last shoot for Audubon magazine, you know, not hugely dangerous, but I was 100 feet up a tree uh, photographing <laughs> wow. the mistletoe being planted 
for Regent Honey Eater Habitat and my um, carabiner failed. Now, I like I had two. Um, the other people only had one and I actually asked for two. Um, I've, I've, I've fallen on a glacier off Antarctica and, and, and cracked a wrist. But, you know, that's... that's you know, I, I, you know, I, I think um, going into a car park and watching some people try and reverse park in as I walk past <laughs> it is probably more dangerous than a lot of work I do. Yeah. Well, I guess the upshot <laughs> of cracking your wrist in Antarctica, you had ice handy, so... Oh, well, that's, that's funny, rice, it sounds, yeah. lot, it sounds a lot more cooler, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. So what other call, uh, close calls have you had with, with the fauna? And, and I, you... Look, I, I haven't had any. I, to be honest, it sounds very, very boring. Um, you know, maybe nearly having steps on a snake. Um, but besides that, because I focus on Australian uh, conservation and, and yeah. uh, animal welfare issues, besides, you know, a snake bite, and I've never had one or even closer, and I've nearly stepped on a snake, but that's, that's really about it. It's, it's more been, um, you know, maybe nearly falling off a ravine because I haven't tied myself up to take a photo of a great flying fox properly and I've been a bit lazy or it's literally walking across rocks with, um, with bags. Well, I think actually probably the, the most recent one was uh, bushfires. Uh, and it wasn't from the bushfires, but I was out on my own behind the... Um, after the fires had gone through and I was going to take a photograph in a river that I thought was about two inches deep and I stepped into it and it was about two feet deep and it had been filled with ash and that's mm. no biggie but I had problems getting myself out and I was mm. 20 k's from anyone and then a tree fell and nearly mm. hit me. Now if it had, um, no one would have known. So you know, from that learning I now take a, a, a radio and a GPS beacon yeah. and, um, but Look, I, I not 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 that brave. I just thought of another uncomfortable moment for you, though. Do you remember when we were on the west coast of New Zealand and you were lying oh. in the sand for hours and hours photographing the fjordland oh. penguins? And poor Doug, I was so far away. He was trying to signal me to bring some oh. um, some bug repellent, and he got totally covered oh. in his bite. In sand flies, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. One hundred and seventy-two bites. Oh no, it was broad enough. <laughs> Don't bring back memories, them, yeah. And had to, uh, <laughs> yeah, was, I had such a reaction, I had to see a dermatologist. It probably took a year for a lot of them to, oh, uh, gosh. Heal, but, you know, that was just... Um, yeah, and the infection too from, from all those yeah, bites. Yeah, oh, it was just, just uncomfortable. But that, that, <laughs> look, I, I got a, a photo that did well, so that's, that's good. okay. I think you probably, as a zoologist, you've probably unconsciously got a lot of talent, um, you know, um, or, or a development of rapport and awareness with the environment, Um and, and its inhabitants or with the animals, and you're not even aware um, that you actually have that, what qualities do you think a wildlife photographer requires to capture those great shots that you actually take? Uh, well, zoology definitely helps. Uh, I think it's understanding your subject. I mean, it really is, and I, I'm really interested in, in wildlife, so I'll normally generally try and become a, a semi-expert. I'm not talking about an academic expert, but well enough to talk with the experts and write articles on animals. You know, generally, not always. If I'm just doing a single shoot, um, I might be as knowledgeable as I'd like to be. But I think it's just really understanding uh, the wildlife. So it's, a, I guess, an inquisitive mind is, is really important for conservation and wildlife photography. I think um, a, sense, uh, a certain degree of patience or obsessiveness. Um, I have the latter. Um, <laughs> the former. I, I'm, I'm obsessive. I, I, I absolutely... I, I uh, would probably diagnose myself as suffering a bit of, well, not suffering, but lucky enough to have a little bit of OCD uh, when it comes to photographs. And I think if I shift away from wildlife and I shift to conservation photography, at least 40% of your photos have to have people in, in them in some way. And the reason is all, or virtually all conservation issues are caused by people and they're also mm. solved by people. So therefore they need to be an important part of the story, whether they're doing great things or they're doing bad things or they're trying to help or they're showing an issue. Mm. So when you look at my wildfire, yeah. um, bushfire photos, there are um, DELP people rescuing koalas. There are Air Force people transporting them in a um, Spartan CJ-27, I think it was, oh, out yeah. of Malakuta. There are forestry officers up trees. It's all about people. I mean, conservation is generally... 
all about people. Um, they cool. cause yeah. problems and they fix the problems. You're um, pulling out so the I heartstrings, think, yeah. Yeah, so I think the, the ability to be comfortable with people and talk to people, and I think going way back to your first question, uh, that having, being a bit older, for me anyway, uh, having done a teaching qualification, um, having been in marketing and dealing with people and learning those corporate communication skills, I'm much more comfortable now. I don't think I would have had the um, audacity or the confidence to go up and say, hey, can I? I mean, I remember coming down to uh, Apollo Bay. I'd, I'd never um, even heard of Conservation Ecology Centre and I picked up the phone and spoke to the fantastic Lizzie Cork and said, I want to take a photo of a qual and I want to do this, 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 this and this and this is why. And um, obviously they're fantastic and yeah, uh, do yeah. a bit of work for them now. And Wildlife Wonders know, is opening up very soon, so just a plug for them too. They've done a great job. Uh, <laughs> at, 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 absolutely. Hopefully they'll have, I keep saying to Lizzie, hopefully they'll have an on-site uh, photographer um, running courses <laughs> at some stage. There's no plug if you're listening. Uh, but, um, but I think that confidence to engage with people and chat with people is, is really important because sometimes you've got to stick a camera really close um, in someone's face or you've got to stretch the friendship you've got to stretch the friendship and say yeah. oh look I've taken this photo but can I come back again tomorrow because it's just not perfect and that sometimes pisses people off but I'm <laughs> not that I want to piss people off but I'm comfortable with that if um, it's, if it's going to get a photo that will be better that will help a conservation or wildlife uh, issue because that's a, I guess that's the difference isn't it Doug so if you get a shot that is good as opposed to a great shot, they can be getting a story into a magazine and not. And so the publicity, the public pressure, I guess that social attention can be either hit or miss if you don't get that right shot, can't it? Oh, absolutely. And as you were saying before, there was, uh, I think I think in 2017 there were 1.2 trillion images taken, captured in the world wow. Wow. Um, with some data written. So you do need to get that, that cut through in. You want it with reputable journals. I, I uh, had uh, some pieces published with National Geographic, but when I met with one of the editors and I'd spent three years photographing platypuses, the uh, oh, head, uh, editor there said, some nice photos, but nothing great. Oh. And I had to go away. And, and that was it. That was, that was the feedback um, <laughs> when we caught up in London. And I, and I, had to, and I went reshooting. Now, the great thing is uh, those photos are now uh, running around the world this week, actually, because oh, I don't know yes, if people have heard the, yep. uh, the platypus it's has endangered. been, yep. um, well, a submission has been put in for the platypus to be listed as uh, threatened across Australia. Yeah. I put in a submission um, a few years ago and it was just announced two weeks ago that the platypus uh, should be listed as uh, vulnerable uh, to extinction in Victoria. And mm. whilst that's nice, you need some nice, powerful images to go with that. And so um, that's the benefit of, of photography as, as well. But, that is um, a benefit, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. You. That you can actually yeah, do your research uh, at the same time because, I mean, you're actually out there observing what's going on with the wildlife. So you can report well, back, for yeah. Me, for me, it's, it's, not, it's not really so much the observing the experts do that, but I talk to a lot of uh, zoologists, biologists, conservation, you know, the, 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 the Lucy's and the Shane's and the... Carolines and all, you know, the wildlife wonder people. And I, I speak to those people about things and I learn, learn things from speaking to them. I'm, I used to be a zoologist, as I said, but I'm mm. no expert. I very much ask them. And then understanding, trying to understand what they understand, I then know um, how to take a, a, a better photo. Um, and look, a, a, simple, a simple example would be, coming back to Conservation Ecology Centre, when I was photographing their potteroos, they were explaining mm. to me how they were important to spread the... I hope I get this right, the fungus in the soil. Yeah. And so I did a really close-up of their incredible long front uh, nails, nails because yeah. that was relevant to the story. So it, it's talking to people and, and trying to understand the important stuff, just not going mm. out just to take a, uh, I guess, a, a nice picture, although that does engage people as well, depending yeah. on the topic. Now, Heather, um, we and both of you, actually, we know that you both love um, a cooler climate. You, uh, Heather <laughs> Quiley, you actually did a postgraduate in Antarctic study. So what was it like for you? Um, tell us about that adventure, what you learnt, what you researched and the experience that you gained. Uh, that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life, I think. Um, I went to study this course in New Zealand. So what the course is designed for, it's a, it's a preliminary course to do if you're thinking about becoming an Antarctic researcher. 
and other people go on to do different things with it as well, um, become interpreters on Antarctic cruise ships and things like that. But um, the whole experience is designed to give you a taste of all the different types of research that you can actually do in Antarctica and um, also to give you the experience of actually sleeping out. So we all slept in polar tents for 10 days on the Ross Ice Shelf. Um, in polar so tents? Really polar tents? Yeah. To, polar to tent how many minus degrees do they go down to? Uh, I, well, I don't know what they're designed to to protect you from, but you get a lot of extra gear inside to help keep your body temperature where it should be. <laughs> That's obviously a double, <laughs> a double thermal mat and two sleeping bags, and um, it, it was still cold overnight. I think um, overnight it got to one night maybe close to minus twenty. And this is in summer. Um, yeah, it was. That was in January, I think. Because you can't get through, um, can you, any other time of year? Yeah, no, that's right. It, um, the only people that are down there over winter are people that are the full-timers on the research stations. But it was a really fascinating thing to do. Um, one of the interesting things I learned was just how smoothly and slickly these research stations operate because what happens is researchers will fly in from different uh, parts of the world to come and study a particular area or animal down on the Antarctic um, mainland and that will mean that they go out for a certain amount of time, perhaps five to ten days. So that crew have to come down with everything they need but then they get a guide from the research station um, to go out with them so mm -hmm. they will actually take care of their safety and in the research station themselves they have all these food boxes packed up um, ready to go so they'll have food for a week in one box and they work out how many boxes of food they need they work out how many tents um, all the other sort of gear that they need to survive and that all is like a bit of a production line it just gets all packed up calculated packed up put onto a, a transport that might be an over snow transport or it might be a helicopter and then that transport will go and deliver the research crew to wherever they're going to be based out in the middle of the ice somewhere, which is so fascinating. There must be lots of research stations. I mean, I saw adverts the other day for about 150 um, <laughs> advertised positions. About two or three, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Two or three main ones. Um, there are quite a few. A lot of countries have research stations, um, yeah, including the United States. Um, the one that I went to was the New Zealand Antarctic yep. Station, which is Scott-based. Um, McMurdo Station is the United yep. States base, which is only five kilometres away. Um so Russia have um, a base and uh, who else? Australia's got three. Yeah, it does so that I think case, there's yeah. around, yeah, I think there's some incredible number like around 70 across yeah. the whole of Antarctica. Because like you said, there's so, all different countries around the globe yeah, have little stations there, don't they? Yeah, around around 30 countries have, have research stations. So, yeah, it's really interesting, a lot more than you would imagine. But... Yeah. Um, so we did a variety of, of um, experimental research projects. We looked at whether um, we went out looking at seals that had been tagged, um, doing a seal count. Um, a fascinating thing we looked at was snowpack. And I learned a really interesting thing about snowfall in Antarctica. I mean, with all that snow, some of those valleys are covered in snow that is kilometres thick. Amazing. And you would think to yourself, it must really snow a lot there. Um, but actually it doesn't. It is the driest, I think. I think it's the driest continent it's in the world. It's actually a desert, isn't even it? drier than the Sahara. Yeah. So yeah. you sort of think, where does all that snow come yeah, from? Yeah, where does it come from? It just takes a really, really long time for it to fall out of the sky. And so initially when researchers were looking at snow depth, one of the things that happened was that they would put in a, a depth gauge for snow and they go out and measure it. But one of the things they didn't realise was that the snow gets blown around a lot in Antarctica too. So sometimes um, researchers would measure the snow depth on a gauge um, and it would give them a bit of a false reading of snowfall because what it actually was was snow that had been blown around and, and blown up against the gauge rather than fallen out of the sky. Mm. So, yeah, really mm. interesting that they, it was something that, um, that they had to adjust a little bit and rethink how to measure snowfall. Mm. Now, you yeah. have both journeyed to the extremes of the earth. 
you both of you. And and I hear that you also took a couple down from Apollo Bay a few days a, a few years ago. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we actually did. I was working for WWF at the time, and for their uh, anniversary, um, the fiftieth anniversary was it? 50th? I think yeah. I know who you're talking um, about. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we took a group of supporters down on a a ship Um, so a lot of people came with a a small crew of WWF what a trip and yeah yeah, it was just amazing and so um, that was a really really great trip and we saw so much fantastic wildlife on that trip including breaching whales and unbelievable stuff that Doug and I actually hadn't seen um, on our trip prior to that um, so, yeah, we had some really fantastic people on board with us. We actually had Tim Flannery, who oh, um, is yes. the <laughs> governor of yeah. WWF. I'm not yeah. sure if he's still is, yeah. but he was yeah, at the time. Yep. Yeah, ambassador yeah. and governor. And um, Tim Jarvis, who's a, um, a, an explorer, adventurer and conservationist who does a lot of interesting work, raising awareness of climate change and um, melting glaciers and things. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, that was a really wonderful, wonderful trip. It is on my bucket list, definitely. Good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, great. It, it really is a wonderful place to go. Too many David Attenborough stories I've seen. There's a good ultramarathon <laughs> that's run on Antarctica. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we actually had... Do you, are you guys familiar with Park Run? Yeah. Yes, yes. He's an yeah. ultramarathon runner. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a, a thing that um, happens in a lot of local parks. So uh, they do park the runs over there as well? <laughs> Well, Around we did because one of the girls that I studied with um, was a really enthusiastic park runner and she decided oh. she was going to actually organise and, and hold a park run at um, Scott Base. Why not? <laughs> yeah, it was great. Yeah. Fantastic. So how does that actually operate? Do you, you find places that don't have um, any snow or ice or uh, or do you have to run on, actually, the snow, on the ice? No, you do have to run on the ice. So, yeah, it is um, it is a little bit tricky, but there are areas where you, you can do it. Yep. Yeah. 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 So, hey, you've both got some amazing talent. So, how do you go from, I guess, taking a whole heap of individual photos, and I know each of your photos you're talking about you want to tell a story, but how do you then put that into, I guess, put a collection together to, to, to tell a message and to portray a story that really connects with the emotions of the public? And I guess, you know, a good oh, example would be, you know, your book that you, you've just released. It's generally painful for me. Um, <laughs> and painful, painful for Heather because, you know, I suffer from my work and so does she. Yeah. Uh, I think, well, the first thing is whenever you take photos, I mean, there's the basics. If it's out of focus, if it's cropped inappropriately, if it does, if, if the background's not... Um, Clear, etc., etc. So you, you can delete a whole lot there. But you know, for the for the book, it was really about creating a story and then trying to find the images that fit it into the story. And if I didn't have those images, then go out and take them. So this book really took um, uh, well. Th- there's three years of photography in there, but we actually started writing it down when we were staying down at Skeens Creek a year and a half ago. Yeah, we did. Uh, we, we storyboarded it out, um, thinking what would be a, uh, a a good a good story so the book you know it's called life upside down and, and taking kids on a on a journey but then going back and looking at all the photos going well does that tell that specific piece of information so when it comes to a book um it's sometimes harder because you need space to write copy and a lot of the times when we take photographs you mightn't be shooting wide enough or there mightn't be a clear background to put written words in, in big font for children yeah. Whereas uh, when you're sent on an assignment, um, so coming back to that when I, uh, story, I was up in the tree in the Carabiner file, the editor said, if you get this shot, I'd like a double-page spread. So for me, I knew that I couldn't have anything important smack in the middle because that's where the spine yeah, would go. Yeah. So I would shift it to the left or the right. You know, look, I nearly killed myself getting the photo. and It, it looks fantastic, like though. And when the yeah, no, name... The, the, photo, yeah. the, two, the photo was about two inches by three inches because I decided not to use it as a double-page spread. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but so it, it, depending on what you're shooting, a, a good brief, uh, knowing how it's going to be used, it's going to be used in a poster, it's going to have copy on it, if it's the, the shape of the book. Um, you really need to need a, a good brief, and sometimes you shoot portrait and landscape, and you're doing a mixture, and you put things to the left or to the right. So, knowing what you 
what the end outcome is. You know, of course, if it's social media, um, you just shoot your normal four by six, and yeah. that's fine. And you put it wherever you think it looks uh, most aesthetically pleasing. Now but it's it's sometimes an ab- magazines not the case. Yeah, it's a brilliant name for the book. It's upside down. Um, where you dive into the um, the world of the Australia's grey-headed flying fox and you discover their habitat, body structure and behaviours um, and you deliver that to children, don't you? Yeah. I, um, you know, I've, I've, I've partly given up on old people as just being stupid and not changing their behaviours if I was to be brutally <laughs> candid. So we thought if we, if we can get young kids to, uh, to care, uh, they'll be the next generation to, to save, save the world. I mean, the Greta Thunbergs and the... the, the the younger people are much more open, uh, I've found. And, of course, other people are open uh, as well. But just generally, um, you know, when you're a kid, you don't mind playing in the mud and with frogs and things like that. And so we we very much focused on uh, kids between 4 and 10, and that, that's quite a, a large age bracket. But as I was saying before about imagery, depending on language level, it could be appropriate. You know, some, some five-year-olds are reading Lord of the yeah. Rings and some 10-year-olds are not on Harry Potter yet, so it, it's a it's a broad um, target. But you know, we really wanted to focus on kids, and also so it could be very visual as well. So it, it's got words in it, of course. But coming back to if we can have images that tell a story uh, that don't need a lot of words, that was I guess the key design part, and obviously Heather's skills as a, an incredible graphic designer, not only in laying that out, but then putting some information sections uh, in the book with, with graphics uh, to be engaging and this children. Is, and, look, you know, know. and Heather's been with me for 22 years, so she's been used to dealing with a child for that long. So, you know, <laughs> it's a, a double skill that way. Yeah. Now, I mean, grey foxes are, are villainised as well, aren't they? They're, they're very misunderstood animals, obviously, with... Um, with what they're trying to do with them these days. Move them around in different colonies. But you, you both do a lot of work. I oh, know you've written a book about it, but you also do a lot of work behind the scenes with rescue and rehoming and, and that type of thing too, don't you? Yeah. Well, are we, our journey with flying foxes, I guess, started when I was at uni. Um, I went back to uni in my late 40s to do uh, environmental science, um, majoring in conservation um, and wildlife biology and one of the subjects I was doing was about animal behaviour and my project was to go and observe grey-headed flying foxes and see what what behaviours they were doing during the day and particularly in summer when they have hot temperatures and looking at how much time they spend fanning themselves to, themselves to stay cool and things <laughs> like that and Doug, who was down at the Yarra um, at the big colony down at the Yarra River and Doug came down with me once or twice, and I think the first time we went down to have a look at them, he didn't even get out of the car. <laughs> so, <laughs> he was just sitting in the car doing stuff, waiting for me. And then another time, he actually started having a closer look at them. And I think that is the thing about these guys. It's so hard to get a good look at them, and for most people, their experience of them is just to see them flying overhead and they're it's very hard to make out their features and their beautiful, engaging little faces. And it's not until you actually get a close look at them and you get to watch their behaviour and see what incredible little characters they are and how much they just look like a flying puppy dog, you completely fall in love with them. And then when you see one with a baby and you mm. realise they're mm. actually a mammal, they breastfeed yeah. their baby, mm. they oh, do wow. that while they're flying. <laughs> just, wow. They are extraordinary animals. So why are they yeah. so villainised? You know, a lot of people say they have diseases and um, uh, they're, they're poo, basically, you know. They're scattered around mm. and, and just carrying disease. Well, they've been blamed lately, haven't they, for something? But um... Well, I mean, it's okay. They have. And, and someone, I had a photo published, I think, by National Geographic recently, and someone said, oh, they spread uh, coronavirus. And said, that's really interesting of the... Um, mm. 12 million cases of coronavirus, say, in America, all, that's all been spread by people. Um, funnily enough, if you stop and think about it, yeah. um, and talking about you know, disease-carrying animals, well, you know, I know another species that <laughs> is a disease-carrying animal, and yeah. it, 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 it actually takes it out of its uh, habitat and spreads it around the world. And, and, mm. and that's us. And I, look, I, I agree, they're villainised, but I would, I would really, really say um, 
and, and justly, you know, putting my microbiologist Most definitely. back on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the data is still out of where it came from. The, obviously, the COVID-19 virus uh, is linked to flying foxes. But A, it's not an Australian species, so right. totally different species. And secondly, uh, they're still not sure on the vector of transmission, whether it was from bat to pangolin to human. But I, I think part of it comes from maybe the Northern American experience where bats have... Uh, been small and creepy, and you know, vampires and blood sucking. So, I think, you know, the the the, the, the Halloween, uh, the Halloween yeah. culture. Whereas, you know, great headed flying foxes, they um, they're they're what's known as a keystone species, which basically means if we uh, if they go extinct, other species collapse around them. They're more important than bees. They they travel uh, maybe forty kilometers a night, um, wow. distributing. Uh, Pollen and seeds. If you think of the bushfires, uh, if you want to get seeds up there, greater flying foxes do that. They're they're actually one population that exists from Adelaide up uh, to the north of Queensland. Think of them like the grey nomads. When it gets uh, when it gets winter, a lot of them head up north, and when it gets summer, a lot of them come down um, south. And they, as I said, they do over uh, they help regenerate and pollinate over a hundred different species of uh, plants. And so different species, wow. Yeah, yeah. So if they, if they disappear, uh, forests and their ability to regenerate will will disappear. So they're, they're, they're even from a selfish point of view, yeah, they're conducive yeah. yeah. to the environment. Um, I'd be more comfortable getting rid of bees. Not that I suggest we do that, of course. But they, as I said, these these are long-distance pollinators. One one bat was tracked in a paper released a couple of months ago that travelled two thousand six hundred kilometres over a year, which means from Queensland as they're heading up the coast, yeah. yeah. Well, basically, so yeah. as they're heading up the coast, they can repollinate the eucalypts. I mean, they've evolved over about two million years, I think, for for um, uh, to have the nectar of trees that um, open up at night, which is why they like the eucalypts. Mm. and um, other species like that. That's why they go out at night. They've got them, but then they're evolved to have this incredible eyesight so they can see at night and this incredible sense of smell. So they, they are um, an incredible piece of evolution that uh, is so important to uh, Australia. So e- even if for no other reason, a selfish reason that you want to protect uh, our forests, um, you know, people talk about no, no forests, no koalas. Well, you could nearly go no flying foxes, no forests, no koalas. Yeah. yeah. Well, for a lot. I mean, not all. It depends where they go. Yeah. I mean, I know they don't come down to Apollo Bay. Why? Well, mind you, I think oh, there yeah. have been some down there. But they're, more, so, yeah. they're more cutting through Colac. Yeah. Um, they prefer to be vilified up there. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> political statement spoken yep. on behalf of me. Um, <laughs> we but, talked about that, yeah. Uh, um, but you know, I think okay, I think to have this point, they're misunderstood, and I, yeah. I think again, one of the reasons for the book is you get to take a nice close look at them, and I think if people take a good close look, you can't help but go, wow, they're actually really gorgeous, uh, and then when you learn about them, you can go, wow, okay, they're one of the largest bats in Australia. They are just one population, as I said, they're highly intelligent. They have over forty different vocalizations, so mm. the chitter chatter that may sound uh, ruckus to us. <laughs> I sort of say to people, it's no different to going to a food court, say at Chadston, close your eyes. It's just noisy, it's smelly, and you can't understand what's going on. So uh, right this, in your element, yeah. This is why I don't go to shopping centres. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> lucky, well yeah. lucky us that you stepped out of the car. Fantastic. We can all benefit yeah, from... Um, yeah, pretty pretty embarrassing story. I was just sitting there on the laptop, I think, at the time, going... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I fell, fell in love with them three years ago and uh, I've been working uh, on and off for well, three years. So what would be your favourite animal that you've worked with and, and, and photographed? Uh, I'm going to say two. Um, one is the platypus. Oh, and yeah. I've all, I, I always wanted to work with platypus and I, my very first job as a graduate research assistant when I became a zoologist over 30 years ago was the platypus, so that's come full circle. Uh, and also the, the, the flying fox, because they are incredible. And it, I, I'm, I know I'm biased, but a stranger graphic have asked me to do other books on other animals, and I find it hard to photograph animals that are as interesting, because you're, with a flying fox, say kangaroos, kangaroos are really cute, they eat grass, they sometimes lie down, <laughs> and they hop. 
<laughs> you know, that's, that's sort of the story. Whereas, as I said, we're, we're greyhound flying foxes. They fly out at night. They eat fruit. They they specialised tendons in their feet that enable them to hang while being perfectly relaxed and sleep upside down. Mm, amazing. Eyesight, great amazing, smell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they carry the young in flight. Their wings, they use them as raincoats when it's raining. Yeah, that's they gorgeous. They use fans when it's hot, but blah, 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 blah. So, you know, I think I just think they are an incredible animal. That um, So it's it's got to be those but just, just because they're so interesting and so engaging and, and so beautiful when you see them close up. And the platypus is such an interesting combination of, of parts from different animals, isn't it, really? It's one of the few animals I yeah, haven't well, seen in the wild yet. Yeah, they it, it's well. You can just go up to um, Lake Elizabeth. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's easy, easy. And in the rivers here too. At certain yeah, times, yeah. yeah, we had one spotted locally in Apollo Bay actually a few months ago. I heard that. I yeah. heard that. But look, a little bit harder to to photograph. They're um, elusive and they're quiet and they you know dive underwater if you get too get too close. But yeah, they're they're, they're um, you know what's known as a monotreme, which which basically one of the two egg laying. Uh, mammals and they're 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 really they're magnificent as well in in their own, in their own right. But as I mentioned earlier, unfortunately, looks like they are now threatened to uh, extinction both because of uh, climate change impacts to our rivers and our rainfall, and also mm. uh, something that I haven't seen mentioned, and I'm really glad it has been mentioned by the government in the Victorian Scientific Advisory Committee report, and that was the impacts of population growth. Because that's something for me that as a species and as a community and society we don't talk about. Um, I remember when I used to come down to Swamp Apostles, the drive between Melbourne and Geelong was a rural drive and now it's a residential drive. And I think the impact of population growth takes away land both for people to live but also land needs to be Mm -hmm. taken away to grow agriculture and dump our waste. And it is actually, a lot of the data shows that it is the biggest thing that impacts environmental impact. If we had zero population growth, virtually most other impacts would flatten out. Yeah. So um, it was good to see the government um, or the government advisory committee actually say when platypus were being recommended as being listed that population uh, growth is a significant driver because it drives everything, of course. Is it the waste and, I guess, the farming and, you know, the, I guess the, the chemicals that get used that go into the rivers that are causing that impact on the platypuses? No, no, it's, 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 well, it's part, yeah. partly, a, a, absolutely, but drought um, impacts river flows. Yeah, okay. Um, it's death by a thousand cuts as mm. well, putting in dams. Because yeah. unlike, say, flying foxes, where if you split a population, they can fly together, platypus only have one way to connect, it, like most mm. freshwater mm. aquatic species, and that's through the rivers. Yeah. So as soon as you put a dam, you have a drought, you suck out too much water, you Irrigation. have a fire, Stop the uh, arteries, ashes, yeah. clogs it up. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is literally death by a thousand cuts, and so it's not just one thing. It is it is a, a collection of um, of cuts, but those cuts are driven by uh, resource use, whether it be um, land, um, trees. Uh, so besides climate change, it is it is population growth that is impacting them. Mm. What other factors can people take into consideration? Um, you're both great con- um, conservationists, so what else pe- can people do, do you think? to help mitigate um, a better environment for the animals? Well, oh, that's, a, that's a, um, a big question. I mean, mm, one, of, one, of the environment, one, of, one of the basic environmental formulas is environmental impact is, a, is a, an equation of uh, technology in as much that if you make things more efficient, you obviously use less resources. It's population because less people to use less resources and then also um, consumption which yeah. is whether, um, you know, do we need the new iPhone 43 mm-hmm. Mark II? Um, it's a question It's a question to ask. So I, I, I think using less, it's, it's, I mean, and it can be really, really simple. Heather and I have been uh, having takeaway Japanese for five years and we actually take our containers Great. to the Japanese yeah. place. Yeah. And, 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 it's, and they used to look at us like we were crazy, but... You know, I, I think of um, like keep cups. Keep that's, cups, that's yeah, the simple fantastic. Thing. I mean, yeah. I know I know COVID has made keep cups really tough, and I fully uh, understand that as an infectious disease person in the previous life, I, and I, I agree. But I think now, if you have a coffee every day, um, that's five coffees a week, and that's uh, two hundred and fifty mm. coffees a day. I think locally, if if I was to, to say one thing besides um, 
considering those things, it would absolutely be um, pick up one piece of rubbish a day. Mm. I know that sounds really crazy, but when Heather and I used to walk in from Skeens Creek to Apollo Bay, we would just pick <laughs> up one piece a day um, because we'd see so much rubbish. And sometimes it's a little bit overwhelming to see a whole lot of rubbish. But you go, you know, in, in the three seconds it takes me to pick up a piece of rubbish, um, if you think about it, if we could get 10% of Australians to pick up one piece of rubbish a day, that'd be 2.5 million pieces of rubbish a day, um, which would be, what, 15 million pieces a week, which would be near close to a billion pieces of rubbish a year, and that's only 10% of us doing it. That's a lot. So but why is that rubbish in the one. first place? I don't understand it. You know, you come to a pristine place, why would you drop... Um, a, a piece of rubbish, you know. You're coming to enjoy something so pristine. Oh, well, that, that, well, that, that part, it doesn't link back, but, you know, that other key word I see, you know, some photographs of crap, well, that probably links back to, uh, I think the technical term is selfish dickheads. Mm. Um, <laughs> or inconsiderate yeah. people, I think. Uh, um, obviously, people sometimes drop it. It's not that hard. Um, we, we, yeah. were, we were down at... Uh, near Pirates Cove, and there were like 12 beer bottles that oh. had been left there last week. And let's um, go, why? Yeah. It, 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 I think it's just inconsiderate or laziness. It is, isn't mm. it? Be candid. Um, Some of it's just incidental as well. I think something that we notice a lot, and once you start looking for them, you see them all the time, are hairbands. Yes, um, yes. From ponytails or rings of, of any kind because they're really dangerous for freshwater, uh, freshwater life or, and seawater life. So, yeah. you, you know, you see pictures of platypus or, or other animals mm. um, with a, a ring around them, you know, seals with those um, six-pack yep. um, yeah. rings around them and things like that. So, yeah, I'm such a magpie with those things now. Yeah. I'm walking down the yeah. street. I just can't can't go past and, and, <laughs> a, a hairband. Yeah, <laughs> because I've been working on platypus for a while, that was one of the things where we'd, we'd, I'd photograph and found platypuses that had been you know, snuffling with their noses and there's a hairband or a rubber band oh. and they get them around their neck and then eventually it would get an infection <sighs> and they would die. Oof, so I, I guess, you know, maybe I was a little bit harsh, um, but, you know, those incidents or things like, I think... I, I, I challenge anyone now to look at a, a, a girl's hair tie or hairband on the ground and walk past it knowing yeah. that <laughs> it could well strangle look, um, a, 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 a turtle yeah. or a, a platypus. Most it's, definitely. It's, um, it's not that hard. And whilst mm. we're there, cigarette butts are my, uh, my bugbear. So one cigarette mm. butt actually contaminates 25 litres of water um, by, by mm. the ocean. So that's a real bugbear for me. Um, I'd like mm, to see a yeah. few more um, cigarette butt um, bins installed mm. around, and you know. Take years. Yeah. Yeah, and they take right. years to um, to decompose, yeah. don't they, as well? Yeah. Do, they, mm. do they last for a sort of time? I can't remember. I read that somewhere. Yeah, and they're so um, carcinogenic. Um, like there's 101 chemicals mm. just in the butt. Yeah. So, mm. But I guess the new version, too, of the hair ties, now the face mask, because when people are dropping yeah. the disposable face yeah. masks, yeah. and they have those and elastic bands on both ends as well. So, yeah, I was saying mm. to Heather, I, I wish I'd, I'd set up a business that had biodegradable elastic bands for hair yeah. masks. I mean, there's all, uh, sorry, for face, for face masks. I mean, there's, there's been a challenge, and funnily enough, Heather went to pick one up, and I firstly said, don't pick it up, it could be COVID infected, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like the old grandmother I was. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's my OCD infectious disease background. Child but there were a couple mother. in Apollo yeah. Bay, and, and, you know, Heather went, like, you know, there's no cases, and so she yeah. picked them up and put them in the bin. I, I don't, I haven't seen many people. I haven't seen anyone deliberately throw one away. No. Uh, but no. to your point, pick, picking them up and putting them in the bin, uh, there's been a lot of uh, social uh, um, media posts I've seen of, of uh, birds getting tangled mm. in those things. So, you know, the, look, the, good, the good news is that uh, hopefully eventually um, that won't be the case. And I guess yeah. from a conservation point of view, don't use disposable ones. Yeah. Use mm. um, yep. washable. What washable ones, which is better for the environment and your pocket anyway. Yep. Yeah, we need incentives as well, don't we? Just like um, the the glassed uh, bottles as well. You know, you you get mm. paid for you know. In certain states, yeah. yeah. Mm. Certain states. Well, if we could have the person who gave me this speeding ticket on pollution, we we'd have no pollution <laughs> in a couple of weeks. <laughs> 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 hey, they were ruthless. <laughs> no, they were, I, were absolute, I won't say who they were, absolute delight, I must admit. But, but, you know, we do, I think we, we need education and we need um, 
policing's not the right word, but enforcement, yeah. but, but education and, and getting people to understand and be empathetic uh, really, really mm. helps. Because I don't think most people are bad people. They either just don't know or they don't no. understand. Yeah. Or, or there are some awareness. people are absolutely inconsiderate. Yeah. No, those people have left the 12 beer bottles down there. I, I always struggle with that because if you can take 12 full beer bottles down, it's much lighter to take 12 empty ones <laughs> back, so it can't be that hard. You wouldn't mm. think so, would it? No. Mm. So just before we go, because we are running out of time very, very quickly, can you please share with the audience where they can find find your work? So obviously you have some fantastic photos mm. out there. You've yeah. recently released a book <laughs> as well. Where can people oh, find okay. these and where they can where they can track you and get in touch? Well, the Upside Down book it can be found at Wildlife Wonders. It I, I, can. Yeah. Uh, listen, <laughs> Wildlife Wonders are... are um, Currently, sole stocker in a holiday of, of life upside down. So I thoroughly recommend going to Wildlife Wonders to get a copy. Um, of course, the book being published through Australian Geographic is available through purchase from them online. And really, all good booksellers have it or can get it. So, um, I mean, I know the Torquay Bookshop happened to have copies um, just because I've been to that one. Yeah. Um, so really, if you Google life upside down bats, you can find that. As far as uh, my photos, I'm, I'm not as prolific on Instagram as some of my National Geographic colleagues, and I'm a little bit embarrassed. I have, say, I've got 12,600 followers, whereas, say, my um, <laughs> friend uh, Joel Satori has 2 million. He clearly does a lot better um, than me, but it's simply Doug, D-O-U-G uh, underscore G-I-M-E-S-Y, Instagram or Facebook uh, as well. But, so, same um, for both? Yeah, I've done Guinnessy photography for, for Facebook. Okay. Um, um, but, and your website. And, oh, yeah, and, and, and my website. But I, I don't want to drive too many people to that because when, when I get a flood of people, it seems to crash. <laughs> crash or get hacked for some reason. But, you know, I, I don't put a lot on my website because it's, it's not about the individual photos per se. It's about the stories that go with it. So I spend a lot of time with my captioning and stories on Instagram. So I, I'm going to say Instagram is your... Your best yep. bet um, to see some uh, photos, and then of course you'll see them in. Um, if you get January's edition of uh, Strange Geographic, there's a, a piece on the Regent Honey Eater coming out. Oh, oh, so that's that's the new one coming out in January. This, yeah. this one coming out. Yeah, the January, January, February one. Yep, there's a oh, piece, um, on that, which will be cool. There's only 300 of those birds, sadly, left in Australia, or left in the world. Mm. Wow. Um, so there's a, a story. A story on on that, um, and uh, if you get wildlife photographer of the year, best twenty five photos. I'm pleased to say, or people's choice photos. When that book comes out uh, in from the UK, you'll be able to see um, a photo of a lovely lady holding a bat, funnily enough, or three bats actually, three baby bats. Oh, gorgeous! So, yeah. So when's that one coming out, Doug? Uh, I think it's out already. Okay. Uh, so, um, the uh, Natural History Museum from London. Yeah. So again, all books, all good bookstores will have um, the collection uh, of, of the wildlife photography of the year photos in there. So look, it's, I've only got one, which is a great honour. But there's some crackers in there, so you'll you'll see you'll see oh, 40 others that are from around the world that are absolutely spectacular. Yeah, nice. It must be a huge um, honour to get your photo into that, because obviously there's a. I think there's you know, a probably thousands and thousands of wildlife photographers out there or photographers who are taking photos of wildlife anyway. Um, so to uh, get 49, into... 49,000 photos submitted this year, um, 100 wow. and then 25 in the People's Choice. So I'll um, so say 125 photos. Out of 49,000. Um, oh, oh, there's a photojournalist story. So I'm going to say, say 140 because there's sometimes a few photo stories. So, so let's round it to 150 so I'm safe. I've never really counted. Um, but yeah, out of 49,000. So it is, it <laughs> is uh, an absolute... Um, honour so each year you wait for that day where the email comes with it says we're pleased to or this year there are a lot of good entries you know how that sentence finishes so, yep uh, <laughs> yeah uh, but uh, no it, and it's like it's like doing well in those competitions because the world gets to know you and then suddenly yeah. you're picked up by uh, a lot of places so they're, they're fantastic and, and raises awareness for wildlife yeah. as well yeah. which is, which is, or issues I should say conservation issues as well which is great Fantastic. Yeah, and we're the lucky recipients. The public's are lucky recipients of being able to see these fantastic visuals as well. So yeah. thank you so much for all the work you both do. And it was such an honour to meet you on the beach. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Well, anyone who's walking, come allowed to say what dog you were walking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone knows. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> from a distance, having photographed dingoes, I was like, "Hang on, that's two dingoes." Um, so no, absolutely. I was glad I came up and had a chat. Yeah, that was great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time for chatting to us and also sharing your stories with our audience. Uh, it's, it's been fantastic. It's been a great privilege. Thank you so much oh, and congratulations oh, on all your work. Thanks. Thanks, Brett. Thanks, Kat. So great to meet you guys as well and thanks so much for inviting us to have a chat. Yeah, we'll we'll really hopefully see you when we're back down in... Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> yep. We'll try and get... Uh, hopefully the coats will be a little bit better condition. They won't be molting say, as much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll be, down, we'll be down in August as well. Fantastic. So, Look okay. forward to it. Actually, August would be okay. good because I'll have their winter coats on. Yeah, so it'll be good. Oh, okay. No, I do like winter. Down. Yep. We, I don't think I was mentioned, we normally come down for a month a year. Um, yeah. Round, round winter, but obviously um, we missed it by three days before the ring of steel went up. Oh. Um, <laughs> hence, why, hence why we're down on the very first Monday we could. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a, a little chat. It's guys. been an honour to speak to you both. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, you too. And that was... Uh, Yeah, that, that's that was Doug and Heather, and thank you for joining us tonight on the Wellness Couch. This has been Apollo Bay Radio, 3abr.org, 87.6 FM. And we're your hosts, Katarina and Brett Morrison. And see you next week. Bye-bye.